We are talking about grumbling this morning, something church people know nothing about. That's where we're going this morning because that's where our text leads us this morning. What do you grumble about? The mess others leave in your house, like you clean it all up and you turn around and it's a total mess again. And you're like, oh, I don't know these kids. Does Highway 1 make you grumble? <laughs> or is that just me? Okay. Do you grumble about how customer service fails you at the coffee shop, the restaurant, wherever? When Instagram is down, do you grumble? Me neither. All right. Do you grumble about politics? Or more specifically, do you grumble about politicians? Do you grumble about the things that friends or family members do that you don't agree with? Grumbling's just a part of our lives, isn't it? It's just sort of a part of what we do and who we are. But what if it's not supposed to be? And what if there's a compelling reason not to? This morning, we're going to look at grumbling. But before we do, we have to look at a couple of verses that act as a transition uh, from where we were last week to where we're, we're, we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. We, we uh, worked through what's considered the Christ song, this exalting of Jesus who took the road of humility like no one else has because he went from higher heights than anyone's been to lower depths than anyone has ever gone. And he did that because he loves us. He did that. God would exalt him. But he did that out of love. He did that so that we would have life. And in light of what Jesus has done in this world-altering event, Christians are now to live out the implications of salvation. So here's where the next couple of verses go in Philippians 2. It says, Therefore, my beloved, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Paul is this pastor who planted this church in Philippi, who is not there, who's actually imprisoned, and he's writing to them to say, carry on in faithfulness, especially in my absence. And then he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, with reverential awe. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Isn't that interesting? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you for his good pleasure. So who works? Us or God? Work out your own salvation, because God works in you. Okay, we need to make sense of this, okay? So let, let's just do a little bit of a theology class, Theology 101, for a couple of minutes because it's going to help us with our time, okay? The word salvation is used in three different senses in the Bible. Isn't that fascinating? Okay. <laughs> Past, present, and future sense of the word salvation are all used in the scriptures. Let me describe the, the past tense. It's the immediate 
get salvation from the penalty of sin at the moment of conversion. We call this justification. Big theological word, justification. What does it mean? Well, it's that work in the life of the believer that happened in an instant at the moment of conversion where the penalty of sin that had already been paid for by Christ was counted to you. You were justified by his grace. The future sense of salvation is God's ultimate salvation from the presence of sin. We refer to this as the, the grand theological word glorification. And then there's the, the present tense of the word salvation, which is the ongoing salvation from the power and practice of sin. So justification, past, deals with the guilt of sin. When you turn to Christ and you rely on his merits and not your own, God looks at you as justified by the grace of God through his son, Jesus Christ. Dealt with in the past. He looks at you as spotless. The sin has been dealt with. That's a past tense for every follower of Jesus. Glorification deals with the ultimate defeat of sin. Jesus will come again. And he will set everything right. And sin will be done away with once and for all. That's glorification. But sanctification deals with the present help we need in fighting sin. Justification, think of it as forgiveness. Glorification as ultimate deliverance. But sanctification as present help. The Bible refers to salvation in all of these three tenses. It just depends on the place. And so that really helps us with verse 12 here. What, what we're seeing is that we don't only need forgiveness and ultimate deliverance, though those are certainly graces, we also desperately need present help, don't we? Dallas Willard wrote, God is not opposed to effort. Or sorry, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. And we need to get this right. See, these verses aren't a, a charge to earn our salvation through works, but an encouragement to live out the far-reaching implications of our salvation by applying effort. I'm going to show you like three or four texts really quickly in the scriptures that show both our work and his work. Let's take a look at Ephesians 2 verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God created us to work. We see that in the text, just not the wrong work. The wrong work is that we would work for our justification. Our text here in Philippians 2 tells us to work out our salvation. Really, this sanctification, this ongoing need that we have for him to work in us. Salvation is by grace through faith in the, fin the finished, accomplished work of Jesus, not our own works. We aren't to work for our salvation, but work out our salvation. Psalm 121 says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Okay, the Lord builds the house, but we're laboring to build the house. And our labors are in vain unless God is ultimately working himself. See, underneath our work is God's work. Colossians 1.29, Paul puts it this way. He says, for this I toil, and he's talking about the, mature, the maturing of the Colossian church. For this I toil, this is what I work, 
struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I toil, like I go for it. I work hard, I sweat, I labor with what he powerfully works within me. I toil, he powerfully works, same time. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, again, Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. He's talking about all of the apostles. I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. See, what Philippians 2, 12 and 13 are telling us is that we are to work out what God has already worked in. That's how we can think about salvation in verse 12. We're merely working out the salvation he's already granted to us as a gift. But we labor, we strive, we work. We work out what he has worked in and it continues to work in through us. See, there's misinterpretations of this passage that happen a lot. We often play it out like I work for my salvation, meaning God is not doing a supernatural work in me, but that's wrong. We don't work for our salvation. It's a gift of grace. Yet uh, there's another misinterpretation, which God works out my sanctification alone, meaning it requires no effort from me. I sit around and man, God transforms me. Look at that. You can picture it like a sailboat. It's been put this way before. Think about a sailboat. You, you, you can pull up the sail, have the boat ready. If there's no wind, if God is not blowing wind upon that sail, the boat won't move. But likewise, if there is wind, but you haven't lifted the sail, it also won't move. This is a great picture of what Paul is talking about here in Philippians chapter 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you for his good pleasure. See, those who are working out their salvation, all the while knowing that God is working in them as they work, will be joyful people. Like, you can rejoice in that. It's not all up to me. I'm not left to accomplish it all. But as I strive, the Spirit of God is working in and through me and will sanctify me. This should provide us with a lot of hope. And it's that framework, that sanctification, this ongoing work. He's not done with you. He's not through with you. He's not finished conquering sin in your life right now. He wants to sanctify you, but we can approach it knowing that as we strive, he's blowing the wind into our sails and moving us along. You can have hope and rejoice in that. And that's how you can approach every text like this one that goes on to talk about grumbling and be like, I love grumbling. I love talking about people. It's therapeutic. You want to take my therapy away from me? And it's like, yeah, I do. Because it's a wretched thing. But you have a means to accomplish it. You have a hope to get there. Look at where he goes on to talk about, and this is fascinating. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, 
holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. But even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, at first reading, if you've kind of gone through the Christ song of, of his humility, Christ's humiliation and exaltation, and then talking about this mutual work of sanctification that as we work out, he is working in, you wouldn't expect that like the implication Paul goes to is, so don't grumble. Like we wouldn't have reality TV if people followed this command. That's what the show's about. They're fighting with each other. They're grumbling about stuff. So it's sort of surprising that Paul chooses the avoidance of grumbling and arguing as the concrete expression of working out our salvation. But we'll find out why he does that as this unpacks. But, but just to, to, to set a definition in our minds as we go, I just want to be really clear about what the Bible means when it says grumbling. It's murmuring or muttering. It's, it's what we say under our breath to ourselves about someone. I can't believe they just did that to me. These people are just unbelievable. Why am I up here? <laughs> Grumbling, murmuring, talking under our breath in this begrudging tone. It's also what we say to someone in a hushed whisper about another person. You want to know how someone's grumbling as they come up to you and they say, Can you believe that guy? Are you serious right now? You're here, you see this, right? Tell me you see this. Or, or 11 o'clock. 11 o'clock. Unbelievable. Like you just, you, the, hush, the hush comes as you say what comes next. That's, that's, that's the grumbling that the scriptures are talking about. It's, it's different. You need to hear this. It's very different from, from um, voicing honest concerns. There's always a place for that, right? There's always a place for voicing honest concerns. Grumbling's different. It's, it's destructive. Grumbling is private complaining. It's how you feel that you don't make widely known. It's your secret displeasure that you have and murmur to yourself about or that you share with an inner circle of people you trust with your grumblings. So we need to unpack this this morning. We're going to look at it in three ways. First, why do we grumble? Second, why shouldn't we grumble? And third, what's the antidote to grumbling? So first, why do we grumble? Joshua Rothman wrote in the New Yorker, everybody grumbles. It's a basic human behavior. Still, it sometimes seems as though everybody's doing it more. Last week, I spent the day keeping track of my social interactions, asking myself what percentage included grumbling. The answer was nearly 100%. I had grumbled. My friends had grumbled. If I'd overheard a phone conversation on the street, it had involved grumbling. It's the kind of thing that makes you think, given its omnipresence, it's tempting to say that grumbling may be the quintessential modern speech act. Do you agree? Yes. Grumbling, it seems, is just a part of who we are and what we do. People have grumbled throughout 
history. But the internet has kind of made our grumbling more audible, no? What were the inner circle quiet murmurings of a few, they now tweet out for masses to see their displeasures, their discontents. They're not so secret anymore. Grumbling seems to resonate with our contemporary outlook at large. There's a grumbling narrative and we're all like, ah, yes, we know this language. We find ways to bemoan pretty much everything. I mean, without grumbling, what's left to talk about? What is there to have in common if it's not a mutual distaste for the way of others? Like I said, people have grumbled throughout history, and it's fascinating. Paul, Paul uses a few words from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5, that he, he wants the Philippians to think back on. Paul describes, uh, sorry, in Genesis, or in Deuteronomy 32, Moses describes the Israelites as a crooked and twisted generation. And Paul uses that exact phrase here. He wants us to think back to the Israelites. Well, what happened there? Well, just a little history. God delivers the Israelites from the hands of oppression in slavery in Egypt. And before he does that, though, um, they're grumbling in Egypt because Moses approached Pharaoh and said, release God's people. And Pharaoh made their work harder, so they grumbled. Then they were released miraculously from slavery and the Red Sea parted and they went through the other side and it was joyous and incredible and Moses is, is just finishing a song of praise to God for their deliverance and the people grumble that there's no water in the wilderness or actually that the water in the wilderness is bitter. In other words, they've just been miraculously saved and the first thing they say is the water here is not filtered. And then the food isn't quite up to snuff and they actually grumble like it's not protein rich enough. And they were re reminiscing about their, you know, the good old slavery days in Egypt when they ate such delicious food as slaves. Like, it's just unbelievable. They were grumbling and grumbling. They turned on their leaders and they grumbled about them. Their momentary praise to God for redemption was quickly replaced with grumbling. Here's the thing. Grumbling was the sin that derailed Israel after they were freed from slavery. Grumbling is why they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. It's the sin that derailed them after they were freed from slavery. Here's the thing. If you're a follower of Jesus, you were, you were freed from an even more brutal, tyrannical ruler, which is sin, bondage and slavery to sin, which would lead to death. And in Jesus, you have had a greater exodus out of those things to life, to freedom, to joy, to hope. And yet grumbling is the sin that risks derailing it all. We will grumble if we lose sight of our hope and our salvation. At the end of the day, grumbling isn't a heart response to this circumstance or that circumstance. It's a heart response to God. Grumbling, regardless of circumstances, reflects our hearts and our grumbles are ultimately about God. We perceive this great salvation and we're like, this isn't the greatest. So why do we grumble? 
this is why. We forget God and his goodness. We forget God all the time. And we operate in the world as gods, expecting everything to go according to our plans. And when they don't, we grumble, we murmur. We've got stuff to say about it. So why shouldn't we grumble? Well, let's look at verses 14 through 16 again. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. See, the purpose for not grumbling is so that the light of Christ can shine through you. But if you grumble, it won't. The reason we shouldn't grumble is this, we can shine. So that, that we can reflect or refract the, the glory of Jesus, the, 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 the humility of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, the way of Jesus, the, the, the beauty of the gospel. But what he's getting at is that if we grumble, we won't shine. Grumbling with other believers is a destructive assault on the unity of the church. Every Tuesday, our, uh, our preaching pastors get together. We're, we have four campuses, and so we, we, we don't do video. We have live preaching in every place. And so all the preachers get together on a Tuesday and look at where we're headed. And we were, we were bouncing this around, and Chris Battle was saying, hey, you know, it's really fascinating. Like, we see the fall of these... Um, celebrity pastors, which is tragic, which is awful, and, and it's problematic and systemic, and we need to understand why for sure. But you know what's more systemic? Is the slow, rotting decay of churches throughout North America because of the murmuring, because of the destructive talk, church full of people that have something negative to say about this direction or that group, these people or those ones, this ministry or that one, the way they're failing and they're immoral. See, grumbling with those inside of the church is an assault on the unity of the church. And grumbling with those outside of the church keeps Christians from shining distinctively in the world. It's, it's so destructive and problematic. Imagine with me that, that you receive a text right now on your phone and you look at it and what it says is somebody on the other end informing you your distant relative has passed away and they left you $10 million. You receive that text right now, right? Highly likely, obviously. I have no relatives remotely like that. Uh, that I know of. We'll see. But you receive that text. Imagine with me that the first thought that comes into your mind is, oh, that is going to make doing taxes this year so complicated. Oh. <laughs> that would be insane, right? Like, that would be absolutely insane. But that's the reason that we're not to grumble is because we have a hope, we have a treasure, 
We have this, this reason for joy. We have this one who has saved us and rescued us. There is no reason to grumble. We have reason for hope. And we have reason to shine in the world as people who are so filled with joy, not at a moment's notice, a reason to complain. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world to his disciples. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are meant to reflect the light of Christ. He shines upon us in our lives and we shine in the world. The character and kingdom of God are put on display through the character of the lives of followers of Jesus. But our grumbling, our complaining, it, it just blends us into the darkness. And there's no witness left. There's a couple different ways that you can, you can try and well, you can try to get away from the crooked and twisted generation by, by doing what many in church history have done. I like to call it monastic seclusion, you know, monasteries. But, but, but it, monastic, it really comes from the word mono, which is singular. It's not that there was a group of people. It would be one interesting character of a Christian just going out into the wilderness by themselves, living there by themselves, so they wouldn't be tainted by everybody else. I'm going to go pursue Christ by myself, and I won't have this, this twisted and crooked generation right, speaking into me. It'll just be me and Jesus, right? And this has happened over and over and over again. It happens today where, where there is this individuals or churches in general together to separate themselves from the world. One of my favorite uh, illustrations of this was a Syrian monk named Simeon. He sat on top of a pillar to avoid contact with the world for what turned out to be 37 years. He started with a nine-foot pillar so that he could separate himself. He, he, he went up on a nine-foot pillar, had some railings so that when he fell asleep, he wouldn't roll off, you know, like a toddler on a bunk bed. And, uh, but what he found was that um, at nine feet, the people were too close, you know? And uh, because the people were too close and they kind of, a lot of people revered what he was doing. Look at this holy man. Look at the sacrifices he's making. So people would come to him and they'd seek wisdom. They'd seek counsel from him. This man was trying to separate himself from the world and only commune with Jesus. And he was offended by that. He was trying to get away from them, not speak wisdom into them. So he moved from a, a nine foot pole to a 50 foot pole. And then he was really away from them. And they couldn't bug him anymore. And it could just be him and Jesus. See, Simeon and others like him were thought to be spiritual primarily because of their withdrawal. But the Bible does not support this view of spirituality. We're meant to shine as lights in a crooked and twisted generation. But well, how do we do that? How do we shine and not just be like the crooked and twisted generation. Well, there's a darkness that looms around and we are meant to shine in it. Well, how do we shine in it? We shine in it by not grumbling like everybody else. That's why we are not to grumble so that we can shine. 
um, some family friends of mine, the mother has passed away now, but had, had, uh, has three daughters. And every day when her daughters were young, she'd send them off to school and she sent them the exact same way every day. She'd say, go shine your lights today, girls. Go shine your lights. Because she got precisely what it means to be a Christian in the world. What, what does she mean, go shine your lights in the world, in elementary school, in middle school, in high school? What did she mean, go shine your light today? She was saying, reflect Jesus today, girls. Take on the humility of Jesus today, girls. Take on the posture of your Savior today, girls. Rely on the Holy Spirit today, girls. Let the ways of Jesus, not the crooked and twisted generation, be your guide today, girls. Why shouldn't we grumble? Because Jesus wants us to shine distinctly into a dark world that desperately needs his light. Okay, but we need the motivation to do it, the hope to do it, the ability to do it. So what's the antidote to grumbling? What is the antidote to grumbling? Well, I, I said earlier, the reason we grumble is because we forget, right? So this sounds super simplistic, but the antidote to grumbling is remembering. See, the art of forgetfulness leads to joy-stealing, faith-ravaging grumbling, but the art of Remembrance leads to faith-flourishing, light-shining, joy-experiencing life. Remember that little illustration I gave you about getting the inheritance, okay? It would be ludicrous for you to think about how complicated your taxes will be first thing, right? What, 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 what makes more sense? Well, rather than complain about it, what we can do is we can live into the inheritance we have in Jesus. We can draw from it every day. Like this is what's waiting for us in Jesus. That's why I spent the first few minutes talking about sanctification. We strive and God meets us in that striving. He sanctifies us. He's working in us as we work out this in our lives. Our deliverance is greater than that of the Israelites from the bondage in Egypt. We live on this side of the cross in light of all that Jesus has done for us. And we're inclined to grumble. And so what we must do is remember. Remember the inheritance, the redemption, the deliverance and provision we have in Jesus Christ. See, when we forget God, we grumble because we put our place, ourselves in the place of God and think that the world should serve us to our liking. But when we recognize that our Savior, who deserved everything being done to his liking, sacrificed himself so he could raise us up, we can take the posture of Jesus and have a heart of service, have a heart of laying it down, having a heart of not expecting that we will be served, but the posture of one who serves. And every, it flips the script. We don't grumble, we rejoice. We're the people who praise, not wallow in self-pity. We're the people who constantly have a reason to thank God, to praise him. And so the art of remembrance is that of telling the gospel to ourselves afresh every day. It, it's the art of remembering all that Jesus has done, living it, sitting in it, rejoicing in it, praising him for it, and then approaching everything that comes our way through the lens of gratitude through the posture of Christ. Eric Liddell 
is, is most known for uh, running the 400 meter dash in, in the 1924 Olympics in Paris. And it was made into a movie called Chariots of Fire. Super good, super good. Maybe you've seen it. Um, the movie is, is really about the fact that he, he wouldn't run the 100-meter dash because it was on a Sunday. And for him, that was his Sabbath. It was a day of rest, and he would not break it. Meanwhile, the country of Scotland was angered at him that this fanaticism of his would get in the way of their shot at a gold medal. He was the favorite to win the 100-meter dash. But when at the Paris Olympics in 1924, it landed on a Sunday, he said, I will not run it. Instead, he, he, he ran the 400-meter, which wasn't his favorite and wasn't his best race. And yet he won it. But here's the thing about Eric Liddell. It wasn't even the most remarkable part of his life. Liddell was a son of missionaries to China and became a missionary to China himself, not long after the Olympics. And during the Japanese occupation of China in World War II, he found himself in an internment camp, separated from his pregnant wife and two daughters who were on the other side of the world. Yet, Liddell poured himself out for the people of that camp. He poured himself out for the hundreds of children that were separated from their families themselves, whose parents weren't there. Liddell poured into them. Over time, the residents of the camp started to grow weary. They started to grumble about waiting in line for every meal. They started to grumble about waiting in line just to use a filthy outhouse. People started stealing from each other and, and hoarding resources. Theologian Langdon Gilkey was a professor in China at that time and was also at that camp. And unfortunately, he commented that the missionaries and clergy that were there were just as selfish as everyone else, just as greedy. But he noticed that there was one person who was different, Eric Liddell. Gilkey wrote, often in an evening, I would see him bent over a chessboard or a model boat or directing some sort of square dance. Must not have been Mennonite. <laughs> Absorbed, weary, and interested, pouring all of himself into this effort to capture the imagination of these pent-up youths. He was overflowing with good humor and love for life, with enthusiasm and charm. It was rare indeed that a person has the good fortune to meet a saint, Gilkey went on to write, but he came as close to it as anyone I had ever known. Everyone in that camp was grumbling about something, except for Eric Liddell. He shone like the stars in the sky, shining among them in that camp. And when Liddell uh, unexpectedly died in the camp of an undiagnosed brain tumor, the whole camp was stunned for days, especially the hundreds of children that looked up to him and were poured into by Liddell. This is what happens when we pour ourselves out. We start to shine like the stars in the dark world around us that just can't stop grumbling. 
Eric Liddell and the Apostle Paul took their cues from Jesus. It says of Jesus in Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is what we know about Jesus in the Gospels. He lived a life filled with hardship, rejection, sorrow, and pain, and yet not once did Jesus grumble and complain. Even when he went to the cross. And on that cross, Jesus died for our grumbling by keeping himself from grumbling. That's how you get justified, by the way, right? You get his record. Never a grumbler. Ferrars, full of grumbling. Jesus suffered the most. We learned this in the Christ song. No one's been higher. No one went lower. Jesus suffered the most, and he did so without grumbling. Jesus holds out his example for us to emulate and provides his indwelling Holy Spirit to help us. This isn't just a pull up your bootstraps or grin and bear it or white knuckle it. This is he will work in you as you desire and go about wanting to even not grumble. And thankfully, it doesn't depend on us. The same grace that saved us is the same grace that continues to sustain us and continue to propel our growth. Here's a challenge for you, Central, for me. Every moment that you're tempted to grumble, think about this. God wants to sanctify me and make me shine right now. Every moment you're tempted to grumble, think this. God wants to sanctify me and make me shine in the world right now. He wants to continue to make me holy today so I can shine for him in the world today. And when we rejoice, when everyone else is grumbling, we shine like stars in the night. Here's why Paul's connecting not grumbling as a primary implication of the gospel that how we live would be seen by others and make them attracted to God. You know, to live the Christian life is we're not trying to debate people and twist their arms to come to God, but that people would say, how do you live like that? How do you forgive like that? How are you so filled with compassion like that? How do you extend grace and love like that? How are you not complaining and grumbling right now? See, that shines. By God's grace, let's be a community that speak light to each other. That not in hushed whispers we grumble to one another, that we speak light to each other, that remind one another of the beauty of the gospel and lift each other up and lay down our rights and endure like Eric Liddell, like the Apostle Paul, like Jesus, our model and our source. May it be so. Let's pray. Jesus, I am a wretched grumbler. Man, this convicted me this week. I, I have a gift in finding things to grumble about. 
And I just want to confess that before you, Lord. It, it, it so reveals my posture so much of the time. So much discontent in me. So much pride in me. So much self-centered ego in me. Jesus, would you forgive me by your grace? Would you remind me, would you remind us of the gospel? You're pursuing love for us. You've saved us. You've given us an inheritance. And you're working in us now, today, that you might sanctify us and rid us of the ugly, rid us of the dark so that we might shine with the light of Christ. May it be so. We ask that you would do this work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.